during the TRL era, I think that was like a transition point between MTV still holding on to music videos and then realizing they weren't worth it. Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Later on, we'll take a look back at the life, death, and resurgence of music videos. But first, let's get into the Pop 5. Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck tied the knot again. But this wedding isn't making headlines for great reasons. Jennifer tied the knot a second time on a plantation-style property in Georgia. Apparently, Ben Affleck owns the place, and it was reportedly a rice plantation that indeed owned enslaved people. It's 2022. Why are people still getting married on plantations? Like, why would you even want that? Have people not said this enough? Don't get married on a plantation. They were not happy places. This all makes it a little harder to root for Bennifer. Four. Did you watch the House of Dragons premiere? If so, you're in good company. Nearly 10 million people tuned in. Your family has dragons. HBO Max says it's the most watched premiere in their history. So it looks like a lot of people forgave them for that Game of Thrones finale. One new rapper may have just had the shortest career in history. Old school hip hop fans were cringing when FN Mecca got signed by Capitol Records. But people weren't complaining for the usual reasons. They were mad because FN Mecca isn't real. He's a virtual rapper, a rap robot. A human voice records the vocals, but the lyrics and composition are all from AI. And let me tell you, this program loves the N-word. When the word got out that Capitol Records had signed the AIMC, there was an immediate backlash. And just hours later, Capitol Records decided to drop FN from the label. So it seems we've kept the hip-hop robot takeover at bay another day. Kim and Courtney, do you need to check your sprinkler timers? In case you weren't aware, the whole western half of the continent is in a massive drought. There are major water restrictions in place in Southern California, but it looks like some of the rich and famous residents of Greater LA didn't get the memo. The Los Angeles Times looked into just who was blowing past the limit on water use in the fancy suburbs. And guess who's topping the list? So many rich celebrities. Among the worst offenders, according to public records, Kim Kardashian, whose properties exceeded their allowed water usage by more than 230,000 gallons in June. Her sister Courtney also not doing great on the conservation thing. Other offenders apparently included Kevin Hart, Sylvester Stallone, and Dwayne Wade and his wife, Gabrielle Union. Some of the people called out by the paper have responded. Wade and Union said they had a leaky pool and they're fixing it. Stallone's lawyer basically just said, they're trying to keep the trees alive. Okay. But soon, the biggest wasters might not have a choice in the matter. The water district could slap flow restrictor devices on their properties, which would shut off the flow when they hit their max. So yeah, the Kardashians, they might be getting cut off. Whoa. One critic's plan to embarrass an actor backfired. Lena Wilson wrote a critique of the movie Bodies, Bodies, Bodies for the New York Times. The movie's a new satirical slasher that co-stars Amanda Stenberg. 
and the review Wilson wrote was pretty harsh. She called the movie a 95-minute advertisement for cleavage. Amanda evidently didn't like the review, so she hopped in Wilson's DMs and called her out for focusing on her boobs the entire time. Wilson responded by screenshotting the DM and making a TikTok about it. I don't want anything else to come of this. I am devastated to have received this message in the first place. I was a genuine, huge fan of hers. But I'm posting it because I don't want this person who has more social power than me to think that it's okay to do something like this. And that's all. And this is where the plan backfired. Folks on TikTok and Twitter pointed out how cringy the video was and the irony of her implying that Stenberg was somehow homophobic, being that they're both gay. People also said that it was Wilson who actually tried to bully Stenberg by posting the DM and engaging in racist stereotypes. Amanda Stenberg responded by saying that she thought Wilson would find the DM funny and said she sent the DM because she's tired of people making comments about her body. And to make the backfire complete, Wilson has since left Twitter. And finally, there's one show that's been on my mind that gives a different perspective on dating. In India, marriage is a very big industry. A very big, fat industry. Here we go. This is a reality show from Netflix that follows Indians both in India and living in the U.S., as they go through this matchmaking journey to try and meet their partners. Ashani Nath is the culture editor for The Juggernaut, and she describes Indian matchmaking as a hate watch. So it goes back to those traditional roots of arranged marriages, and they work with Seema from Mumbai, who (laughs) is a self-proclaimed best matchmaker in Mumbai, or I think she would like to say potentially India. Seema Taparia from Mumbai. Hi, how are you? Hi, Hi. Seema from Mumbai. She works with these couples to talk about their criteria, what they're looking for, and match them up with potential partners. She's become a meme in herself. She's almost like a caricature of that old auntie that comes and tells you to expect less, and then you'll just be happy. And that's one of her main things. Like, you're never going to get 100%. So people come and they have this criteria. And sometimes it's, like, ridiculous. But sometimes it's stuff like, I like to find the person attractive. And she's like, you're never going to get 100%. And I'm like, attractiveness? You know what I mean? I don't have magical powers. I don't do a magical wish with a wand. Like, truly, sometimes I don't understand her reaction to what is considered outrageous and what is considered, oh, yeah, totally normal. So we'll see her being like, yes, the girl should be educated from a great family. But also, this family is not actually looking for her to work in a business or anything. They want her to stay at home and take care of kids. She won't blink an eye at something like that. But then if a a career-driven woman says, I really want to be attracted to my partner, she's like, whoa now, whoa now. The kids these days, they want everything. It's too much. And I think in this season, what's really interesting is she definitely heard the backlash because in the first season, you know, there was that whole idea of, you know, you have to adjust. It's almost like a slang term in my community, that idea of adjust. You just have to adjust a little. And it really just means lower your standards. Often it's kind of code for that. So instead of saying that this time, she started to put numbers to it. And she said, 
you know, I can't get you 100%. 100% is impossible. But I aim for 60 to 70%. So you're going to have to lower your standards. It's telling in a lot of ways, because I think it combines this idea of we have more empowered women now who are looking for partners who are their equals. And I don't know that this structure always allows for it. And definitely, potentially Seema's approach to matchmaking doesn't necessarily allow for that. But on the flip side, maybe there's a conversation to be had about what we think we want versus what we actually need. There's a reason Ashani called this show a hate watch. It is true that it's really, really entertaining, but it also has some not-so-funny aspects. In the first season, there was a lot of colorism and fat phobia, people asking for fair-skinned partners or slim partners. And while it might have been an accurate depiction of what some people wanted, it was often presented without context and just kind of normalized. In the second season, you don't see that as much, at least not blatantly stated. But still, there are some other issues that carried over from season one. There is no depiction of Muslim matchmaking, Christian Indians. It's largely Sikhs, Hindus. I think there's a couple people who are Jain and largely North Indians. We don't actually get any representation from South India. So I think that was a big letdown for me in terms of the diversity and the representation that we were kind of set up to expect. And I have seen a lot of conversation around that, that again, it continues to be such a narrow depiction. I think when it comes to talking about the challenges of being single and finding a partner that feels right for you, and a lot of that struggle in terms of the pressure to engage in the arranged marriage process and particularly people who have grown up in the U.S., that resistance to it, that feels very real to me. You know, I grew up in Canada. I was born and raised here. And I have been, quote unquote, in talks with my aunties uh, since I was, you know, maybe like 23. And it's this interesting dynamic that we have that doesn't get represented often where you're not really encouraged or allowed to date when you're a teenager. And then all of a sudden you hit your early to mid 20s and it's like, hey, why aren't you married? Like you you need to be married. So I think it depicts the pressures of marriage as a gateway to happiness or that end goal fairly accurately and in a way that like resonated with me for sure. And we do get Aparna, for example, who is branching off on her own. And she really talks about finding a partner who will fit into her life, but at the same time, just building a life that is the best it can possibly be for herself and like what will be, will be. So I think there is multiple narratives about what it looks like to be both Indian and single in this season that can be positive. Indian matchmaking resonated with so many people inside and outside of the Indian diaspora. And I think that's because it depicts a completely different dating experience than the one a lot of people are going through right now. It doesn't involve swiping on a hundred faces or getting ghosted a bunch of times. It seems a lot more serious. And I think that's something people are craving. That's partially why the show works so well right now, because there is that fatigue with online dating. And there is that culture of just ghosting and swiping endlessly to know like you're never going to actually, even if you meet them, you might not go on a second date. And there's this lack of commitment that's happening. It also hit during the pandemic, which I think is an important aspect of the viewership. I think we're returning to that dating scene with a fervor now and wanting to take hold of our 
quote unquote destinies and trying to find a partner and create that future that we want. Online dating just ain't it. Like it's not cutting it. You're not getting the results. So I think when people see the matchmaking process, whether or not they agree with Seema's methods, the idea of having someone to sit down with you and talk about what is it that you're actually looking for and having to answer some of those hard questions about yourself too, because we don't really answer them sometimes when we're online dating. It's just, is he cute? Is she cute? You know, swipe left, swipe right. But when you actually have to engage with what does my future look like? Does it matter if the person works in my city or am I willing to move? You know, things like that. It really forces you to clarify what you want. And then you potentially are matched with people that meet that criteria. So I completely understand why there is that shift towards, hey, this might be a better way. And then an added layer of why people are interested in the show, because you get to see people go through it. It might be a little cliche, but the first music video I remember seeing is Michael Jackson's Thriller. I was over at my grandma's house, and unlike us at the time, she had cable. So at night, when I was supposed to be asleep because everyone else in the house was, I would sneak and watch MTV. I wasn't actually born when the Thriller video premiered on MTV in the early 80s, But more than 10 years later, when I was a child, the network was still milking that video for dear life. I think they used to just like play it on repeat at night sometimes. I love music videos when I was a kid and teenager. It always felt like an event when your favorite artist premiered a new one. I still remember watching TLC videos and recreating them with my cousins. And if you're a millennial of a certain age, you probably remember the first music video you really loved. I would watch BET and MTV's TRL just hoping to catch a glimpse of my favorite video every day. For freelance writer Claire Schaefer, that video was a Britney Spears classic. The Lucky video, that's that's probably the first one. It was a lot of Britney Spears videos that, you know, like everyone else my age, that was like the first ones I watched. Even though music videos were such a big part of my childhood and teens, one day, like a lot of people, I just stopped watching them. And in the years since, music videos have died, resurrected, and now they lead a totally different life. Today, ahead of the MTV Video Music Awards, a conversation about music videos, what killed them, what brought them back, and who's still watching them. Very famously, music videos kind of got their start in the mainstream on MTV. It was known for being where people go to see music videos, and that was sort of a big cultural event throughout the 80s and the 90s. But through various kind of changes to technology and the record industry, that has now evolved into YouTube. Now we see music videos as this kind of a la carte thing where you can go online and witness any video you want to watch by any sort of artist you want to watch. And so now the music video space has turned into a competition for people's attention. And I think that's dramatically changed what music videos look like and how we're able to access them. Let's go back. Music videos really hit the scene in the early 80s. 
Before that, there were these things called scopatones that were kind of like a jukebox that would play these really simple music videos. But with the rise of cable TV, the music labels figured out that they could make slightly more advanced videos and distribute them to the networks. Videos didn't bring in any revenue directly, but they were a great way to generate buzz about a song or an artist. The thought was that the more exposure that that video got, the more likely it was for people to go out and buy the album or even the single that it was associated with, because, of course, you could buy physical singles at that point. Over time, MTV became a lot more popular, and other networks that also aired music videos started popping up. And in turn, the videos became more creative and more expensive to make. I mean, the most famous example of the most expensive video ever, and is still kind of arguably considered the most expensive music video ever, is Scream with Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson. The Scream video was a big deal, not only because it had Michael and Janet in it, it was this futuristic, space odyssey-esque black and white video that was so ahead of its time, it looked like it could have came out yesterday. And the video cost $7 million to make. That came out in 1995. There was a very extensive set, constructions that went into it. I think there was also some licensing because there's clips from like different anime that's, that's in it that they had to get the licensing for. They spent a ton of money on that, in part because like Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson at the time were two of the biggest pop stars in the world. And it was seen as this big event that was worth the cost because it would get people to buy this album. And... I think like especially in that sort of mid-90s period right before kind of the Napster crash. Way back in the days before streaming, you had to physically buy the album or single you wanted from a store. Or if you didn't mind a bootleg, from the back of some shady dude's car. But Napster and sites like it blew all of that up. Napster was launched in 1999 as a peer-to-peer file sharing service. Meaning you could share the latest album with anyone with an internet connection for free. It made standing in line and purchasing an album pointless, unless you were just an upstanding citizen. And most people were not. So the record labels took a big hit, and that meant they no longer had money for a bunch of stuff, including music videos. You had just record companies blowing insane amounts of money on these videos, but because they had really nothing to lose from it, um, and that completely changed when um, it no longer led to profitability. You had directors like Dave Myers, who used to direct like 40 music videos a year. And they were all kind of these like big marquee videos. He directed some Pink videos. He directed some Britney Spears videos, that kind of thing. And he went down to doing, I think, like three music videos in 2006. And it was the same thing with like Hype Williams, who, of course, did a bunch of the like Missy Elliott videos and a lot of hip hop videos. Or like Jonas Ackerlund, who did um, Ray of Light with Madonna. And of course, he would like come back and do a lot of Lady Gaga videos. But during that time, he kind of strayed away from it because it it wasn't making the money that it used to. And so I think the music videos that you see during that time are definitely relegated to kind of these like larger acts. They're less frequent, definitely a smaller budget, but like still trying to be bombastic in the way that music videos used to be. Even though music videos seem to be on their way out, the networks that made them famous weren't quite ready to give up. Before BET became the all-Tyler Perry, all-the-time network and MTV switched over to reality TV, there were countdown shows. I don't know what your relationship was with TRL or 106 in Park, 
But when I was in high school, I would watch the whole BET lineup in the afternoon. Hits from the street, Cedars World, Rap City, and of course, 106 in Park. I still remember this summer, Amory's Why Don't We Fall in Love was number one on 106 in Park almost every day. And over on MTV, TRL was basically required watching for preteens and teenagers across the country. And what an amazing sight it is here at our Times Square studio. I'm Carson Daly. Welcome to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Backstreet Boys. During the TRL era, I think that was like a transition point between MTV still holding on to music videos and then realizing they weren't worth it. TRL, I think, was kind of a push to be like, okay, how can we make this more exciting now that we are being threatened by these new changes in the industry. And so making it into this competition show and capitalizing on the boy bands and the, the sort of team pop era that was going on at the time, that was like a, at least a sustainable way for a few years to stave off the inevitable decline in music videos. But honestly, I mean, that's the era that people my age remember the most about MTV is the TRL era. So I think it still has a huge effect on pop music. But eventually, those networks did have to abandon the music video format. But yet, videos persisted. It really wasn't until, I think, the 2000s where you see artists kind of taking advantage of what YouTube brought to the table. Because when YouTube came on the scene, all of a sudden you had these like very unique viral videos that nobody had really seen before. You had stuff like Chocolate Rain. Chocolate Rain. Some stay dry and others feel the pain. You had stuff like shoes. Oh my God, shoes. You had these like viral videos that were, they were very homespun, kind of the sort of random internet humor that now we think of as like very regular. But at the time, people who were not as online kind of thought of it as this unique thing and it would get passed around. And you did start to see music videos at that time kind of try to replicate that humor or try to replicate that kind of DIY aesthetic. And I think of the primary example is like the OK Go videos, like Here It Goes Again, where they're on the treadmills and it's like a stationary camera. That looks like it was shot on a shoestring budget, but it became a huge hit and they performed it at the MTV Music Video Awards. That's not the type of music video you would have seen in the 90s, but I think people were drawn to that even though it was in its own way, like its own kind of spectacle. YouTube eventually partnered with Vivo, and that meant the record labels behind Vivo could get paid from advertising dollars. That solidified YouTube as the new place for music videos. And that's when we really started to see viral music videos. And one of the first came from Beyonce. But even she was still trying to figure it all out. So during that era, I think the same weekend, she released two music videos for I Am Sasha Fierce. One was the If I Were a Boy video and the other was the Single Ladies video. And in a way, it was the perfect experiment because it was the same director. They were both shot in black and white, obviously like similar music, just same album. But one became wildly more popular than the other. And it was the one that was lower budget and much simpler. If I Were a Boy was this high concept video, you know, it was like Beyonce kind of doing this like gender bending thing. And, you know, it had a whole plot. It had, you know, multiple settings. Drink beer with the guys. Single Ladies was just shot on a soundstage and it was just Beyonce and two dancers. We all know the video. It was kind of based off of this old Bob Fosse routine. 
And that video became widely more popular because in a way, people could replicate it. There were parodies. There were memes. Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. You know, it just became much more recognizable because it was one indelible image that people could latch onto. And I think that kind of paved the way for how music videos are kind of made these days, which is making sure you have like an image or a series of images that sticks into people's minds because the way the internet works, you can replicate those images through memes, through reposts, reblogs in the in the era of Tumblr. That's how you come up with like consumer marketing essentially, is like getting people to replicate it over and over and over again. I think we got it. Oh, we didn't get anything. What were you clowns doing? We were grinding. Yeah. I thought that was obvious. If Napster killed the music video and YouTube resurrected it, then social media sites like Instagram and Vine and now TikTok gave music videos another nine lives. I still think of Hotline yeah. Bling as kind of the perfect example of this. You used to call me on my cell phone. But that video, again, like the single ladies video, knew how to create these memorable images in the viewer's brain and make them easily replicable. Like you could repeat them, you could modify them into jokes, you could make them into memes, whatever. Um, and it also fit the aesthetic of Instagram so well, at least at the time, because you had Drake kind of in these neon you know, very minimalist backgrounds. And of course, he's just like dancing in this little box. So in a way, like you're watching on your phone, it looks like he's just like dancing inside of your phone. And of course, it's easy to turn that into GIFs and, you know, vines. And I think it just immediately creates a relationship between the fans as well, because it makes him seem more relatable. He's funny. The dancing is so iconic. And, you know, people like to share that because it seems like he's in on the joke. And, you know, I think it's a different approach than the full package approach of music videos in the 80s and 90s, where there are definitely moments in those videos, but I think it's more about the overall concept. If you look at something like Billie Jean or the Freedom 90 music video, whereas nowadays I think you do get more of these like tableaus that you can like share in an Instagram post or share in a Vine, share in a TikTok, make a TikTok dance from it. I think there's a reason now you have music videos that are in like more of a square aspect ratio or a vertical aspect ratio because that fits on your phone. So nowadays, music videos have come around to being promotional tools again, but now it's geared towards streaming and getting people to stream that song as opposed to buying the album. I've recently discovered there are people who still go to YouTube and some of them are even my friends and they watch music videos. Like they have playlists and if there's like nothing to watch on TV, they just put on music videos. I am definitely not that person. Like I'm the person that'll like <laughs> catch the clip, you know what I'm saying? Like on like TikTok, I'm more likely to know the TikTok dance than to actually see the video if there is one. But I'm wondering if you can think of some examples of videos in recent years that and I don't know what type of person you are. You may be a person who goes to YouTube that either made you or made people say, I need more than just like the clip. I want to see more than like what I'm seeing on Instagram. I'm going to go to YouTube and look this video up. I think the WAP video is a pretty good example recently just because like it was so <laughs> provocative and like you would see again these like clips of it. I mean, I think there's a reason they, they got so many cameos for that video because you would have the Rosalia fan sharing the Rosalia clip and the Normani fan sharing the N Normani clip, but then you want to see the full thing because the whole song is incredible and so memorable. I said, 
by free. Seven days a week. Wet and gushy. Make that pullout game weak. So I think that one was definitely one that people tuned in for. I think inevitably when Beyonce releases whatever visual is going to be for Renaissance, like people will tune in for the whole thing. Obviously, Lemonade, people tuned in for that whole hour-long special. There are still artists that have that kind of command where they've been incredibly smart in their strategy for promoting their work, where it now seems like you have to tune in for every single visual that they put out. But I also think we've evolved so much from the MTV days where like the visual component of an album was just the official music video and then whatever like artwork was associated with the album or the single. Maybe there would be a magazine shoot involved too. But like nowadays it's like the music video, the album artwork, the photo shoots, the TikToks, the Instagram posts, any sort of image that is like a fan-made image that gets like spread around. Like there's so many other visual components and ways to visually engage with an artist's work that like you may never see the the full music video because you've just been engaging with the song over TikTok. That's just how people consume music now. I don't think it's like better or worse. It's just it's different. I asked Claire, what is the diagnosis? Are music videos alive or dead? I think like everything else in pop culture, like there's not really a monoculture around it anymore, or at least like there definitely used to be more of a monoculture around it when MTV was around. And now there are just like so many channels and avenues to view music videos or again, not view music videos, just engage in TikTok dance challenges that, you know, I don't think they're dead. I think they're just like one option that you can engage in and not everyone is going to engage in that. But Certainly, if you're a fan of the artist, that is still an important component of being in that fandom and having that relationship with that artist. And I think music videos are going to stick around because labels and promoters see the value in that. But I don't think music videos are necessarily pulling people into new artists in the way that they used to be. That's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. And I work with an amazing team every week to make it happen. Alicia Key is our show's producer, and we had production help from Blake Lou Merwin. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer, and we had engineering help from Ellie McAfee-Hahn. Our senior director of audio is Graylin Brashear. Big thanks to Ashani Nath and Claire Schaefer for talking to me. We'll have links to their pieces in our show notes. Claire wrote an excellent deep dive for The Rolling Stone all about music videos. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend.